Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. We are now into week three of our series called Gospel Fluency. And together as a church family, we're wanting to grow in the language of speaking the good news things of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life. Uh, If you're, I met somebody during the greeting time, and this is their first time with us ever, and it's so, it's a privilege for us to have them. So for people like that who are, what is this series about? Or maybe you're a foggy thinker sometimes like I am. You're like, well, what did we talk about the last few weeks? Here's a brief recap. The first few weeks, we've been entertaining ideas like this. Number one, we need the gospel. If you're a follower of Jesus, the gospel is not just sort of this one-off message that's kind of at the entry to a Christian life. It's an ongoing message that lives itself out through our Christian lives. You and I need it. And here's the reality. Many of us uh, forget elements, essentials of the gospel along the way. And don't beat yourself up when you do. That's why we're doing a series like this, so that we can grow in our familiarity with its message and how we speak this to ourselves and to one another. We need reminding and refreshing in the gospel. And the gospel is important for us, but it's also vitally important for others, those who have never heard it or considered it. It has eternal significant implications. And if that's the case, if you happen to believe that, then it matters all the more that you and I embrace the gospel, are familiar with it, are comfortable with it, and know how to sort of speak it into the everyday stuff of life. One of the things that we're working on understanding together is this idea of the story of God and five trees, the story of God and five trees. You see the five trees on the walls behind me. You've seen them around in some of our graphics. And there's this idea that there are five significant trees that appear in Scripture. And as we give time to, to them and to understanding each of their concepts and what it represents to us, it helps us, number one, to understand the whole message of Scripture. Number two, the gospel message. And perhaps best of all, it helps us. Each of the trees helps us to see into God's heart with greater clarity. And that is what we're after, is to know him and know his heart. So last week, we entertained some thought and focus on the first tree, which is, it appears right at the beginning of scripture, the tree of life, the tree of life. And as we unpacked everything that we found in our time together last week, it led us to this important realization. The tree of life is really about dependency. Dependency. God is the one who breathed life into us. He put this tree in the middle of the garden, gave us opportunity, not just to have the gift of life already breathed into us, but to choose to come for ongoing life from him. He is at the center of all things, and he is the source and supply of real life. So it shouldn't come as a big surprise to many of us as we move towards a second tree, which book we're going to. It is, again, to the book of Genesis. So you can open your Bible to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. We're going to look at a few things in chapter 2 and then into chapter 3. The book of Genesis is our account of origins. It's our account of origins. For some of you who maybe the book of Genesis is a newer 
experience. There's a fellow we meet later on in Scripture named Moses, and he's key in helping God's people be set free from captivity in, in ancient Egypt. They were slaves there. And so God used Moses to um, bring them out, and that's where we get the term exodus from, or that idea. And Moses is the one who writes, he pens under God's inspiration, these first five books of the Bible, including Genesis. And so sometimes he writes some things in there that are, you know, there's interesting layers that point to the, the Exodus story and the Egypt captivity for the people of God. So let's begin together in chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, Now the Lord God had planted a garden... Sometimes that word garden uh, is interchangeable in the Old Testament or in this context with the idea of an orchard. Uh, God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put man, the man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life, and we talked about that last week, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And where is it located in the garden? Scripture just told us. It's also in the middle. Bump ahead with me to verse 15. It says this. Um, oh, no, I covered it up in my scriptures. Here we go. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, it's important for everybody to notice here at this moment what God is saying and what God isn't saying. What he is saying is, if you eat of that tree, if you choose that tree, you will surely die. What he's not saying is, if you eat of that tree, I will punish you with death. What he's not saying is, if you eat of that tree... I will kill you. What he is saying is the natural consequence of severing your tie to a dependent relationship with the origin and source of life is death. Skip ahead with me now to chapter 3, and we go to a story. Many of you would be familiar with this. It centers around this tree and the human experience of it. And it begins this way in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, I told a story about some neighbors with snakes. So you know that I have a bias against snakes. But this only backs it up all the further. If there's one being on our planet to embody pure evil and be Satan himself, well, it's snakes. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree of the garden? I mean, look at the way he kind of slithers in and kind of introduces himself as a fellow creature that's kind of just musing and pondering things. There's nothing overly offensive out of the gate here. He's introducing a question. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. And then it carries on from there. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it, or you will die. 
if you were to study this passage a little deeper, you begin realizing that Eve in this story is already misunderstanding or mistranslating some things that God has relayed to her and Adam as people. The enemy has already worked his way into her thinking, introducing twists to God's truth and to what's real. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you know what's the irony here? There's a serpent in the garden and there's Adam and Eve. There's Eve that's in this story right now in chapter 3. Who is created in the image of God? Eve already is like God. But now the enemy has twisted thinking and reality so much in her mind and around her that she's beginning to wonder if she could become more like God in some way. She's forgotten her image and her identity that God's already given her. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. Now, it's important to notice something. If you follow the whole sort of creation origins account, when God creates things, he declares over what he's created, it is good. And then when people are created, he says they are very good. And so God is the one who has the ultimate knowledge of good and evil. And this is the first occurrence where we see a human exercising their own judgment of what they believe to be good, not according to what they've learned from God, but what they think on their own. Many of us might think that original sin entered our cosmos the moment the fruit was eaten. But I propose to you it had already entered the moment humanity was now judging for themselves what's good and what's not good. It carries on and says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and you know, if they had believed you know, that they were gonna gain more wisdom as the serpent had said, that should have been the moment that they would gain all of that. But what did they notice instead? Their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? So important that you consider how you hear the tone in God's voice when you read that. You see, if, if you've come from a, a background where you thought that if you eat of that tree, God is going to punish you or kill you, then when he says, where are you, you hear it more like this, where are you? But if you know that from beginning, God was saying, if you eat of this tree, if you choose your own path, your own independence, here's the natural consequence, it's death. You've severed yourself from the source and origin of life, and this is what happens when people do that. So in fairness and out of love, he lets humanity know that. If that's your view of God, then when you hear him walking in the garden in the cool of the day, he's not saying, where are you? He's saying, where are you? There's love, there's concern, 
and there's hope for redemption already in his voice. Adam answered, verse 10, I heard you were in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This is a classic like human moment here. It's a good marriage moment as well. The man said, the woman, I mean, one of our greatest tricks as people is blame shifting, right? And if we can blame our spouse, uh, we can feel like we can get off the hook. Watch what Adam does here. The woman that you gave to me. So he's trying to blame two at the same time. It was her, but actually you gave her to me. So look in the mirror, God. The woman that you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent. Now this is the other thing we do as people. When there's a problem, we like to blame others. We love to blame God as humans, right? And if we can't really pin the blame on others or God, who's the next one to get the blame? The devil, the devil made me do it, right? This is the human condition again. We become like the serpent in that we become slippery, trying to avoid accountability, avoiding ownership of what we've done, what we do. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, if you're to read through the rest of chapter three, God pivots from this moment to begin describing to the serpent, to Eve and to Adam, here is what happens as a result of what you've done. And it's not pretty. It's not pretty for any of them. And again, in particular, for Adam and Eve, it doesn't come from a place of punishment or desire to kill. It's a description of here's what happens when you've severed yourself from the source and origin of life, when you're choosing your own way of doing things. Here are the kind of things that you've welcomed into our world. Now, the enemy gets plenty of punishment. In fact, there's promises that he's going to be crushed. And this is where Moses' writing is really key. Moses is reflecting also on what's happened in Egypt and coming out of Egypt. And who was the biggest threat to God's people? It was Egypt. It was Pharaoh. And what did Pharaoh wear on his headdress? A serpent right on the front. And so not only is this describing what happened in the origin, it's also pointing out you may think that there's a Pharaoh that's rising up and twisting and powerful, but along comes God who has a greater power to overcome earthly enemies as well. And so all kinds of details are described as the kind of destructive things are welcomed into our world through the human choice to live out life independently of God. Now I just need to be clear about something. I, I think about this from time to time, and I suppose this is the best moment to, to put a thought like this in here. As a church family, and I won't mention names right now, but we've learned of a young mother in our church community who is facing a cancer battle right now. And it's sad, it's devastating, we're inspired by their courage and God's help already in this circumstance. But sometimes when we learn of these kind of things or when that kind of pain comes to our family or ourselves, there can be these moments where we think, is God doing this to me? Is it because I did this wrong thing or is God trying to develop my character? Is, did he design this for me? No, he didn't. Look at all of his intentions wrapped up in Eden and then look at what results when humanity 
begins to make its own way in the world, assert its own independence from God. Look what's welcomed into our world. Cancer is not God's idea. It's a result of the corruption and destruction of our world and creation upon itself. As we step back now from this passage and think about last week, we realize that in the garden there were two significant trees. One is a tree of life, and one is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it produces what? Death. So we have a tree of life, and we have a tree of death. So that leads us to two important questions that will guide us for the next few moments. Number one, what is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And number two, why is it even there? Have you ever wondered that when you're reading through the story? Why do we have this tree here? Did God make a significant mistake? Was he setting us up for failure? What is the tree and why is it there? So let's start with the first question for a few moments. What is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? If you do a little bit of study, you find that phrase, the knowledge of good and evil. It's an idiom that appears just a few times in the Old Testament scriptures. And we learn some important things from the appearances of that idiom in scripture. Number one, we learn that children, can everybody say children? Children do not yet have this knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, we learn that in Deuteronomy chapter 1. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, we learn that the elderly are losing this kind of knowledge. Isn't that interesting? The elder, so children don't yet have this knowledge, and then later at the end of life, the elderly are beginning to lose the knowledge of good and evil. So there's clues built into that that help us understand the most probable meaning of what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil actually is. Biblical theologian Daniel Fuller, I think, puts it very well when he says it this way. It would appear that to the original readers of Genesis 2, the expression to know good and evil signified the possession of that maturity which frees us from being dependent on someone else. Does that make sense? That's what children don't know yet, how to live independent of others, and it's what elders in our community, we've observed that in our own family lives, haven't we? That as people begin to get a certain, to a certain point in their aging, they become dependent again on others. So, in the garden we have a tree of life and we have a tree of death. Or another way we could look at it is we have a tree of dependence and a tree of what? Independence. Okay, so hopefully, you know, that wiped away some of the fog that might be out there in some of our thinking of what is this tree and what might it mean. Now we go to the second question. Why does this tree even exist in the first place? And maybe, I don't know if some of you have thought about it this way before, if this tree had to exist, why the middle of the garden? Like, why not on a top of a mountain really far away? Because the naked people in the garden, it's going to take them millennia to find their way onto the top of a cold mountain, right? And then we've got a long period of time before they can mess things up for us. Why does the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil even exist in the first place? 
perhaps the best way for us to gain some understanding on this is to imagine what Eden would be like without that tree. Only a tree of life. Now, if you find yourself in that circumstance, it, it, it would, I mean, you'd think from our point of view, looking in the rearview mirror of human history, that we think, oh, I would just love the whole Eden experience. But, but here's the thing. The longer you'd experience an Eden-like reality, there would come a point in your thinking and in your processing of things where you'd realize, but I never chose this. What if we could have it a different way? Have you ever heard the phrase paradise prison? Essentially, that's what Eden would become. Without choice, Eden becomes a paradise prison. And so God introduces a choice for humanity. And there's massive risk in it because the consequences for people could become so enormous. I remember playing through this thinking as it was first introduced to me, and I just imagined, imagine if humanity had, had not taken from the, if there was no tree, you know, that, if, if that tree wasn't there. Imagine that, you know, population grew and everything seems harmonious and perfect except all of the people feel kind of like, well, God's actually kind of controlling us and everything and we're kind of just the robots that have no will or choice. At some point, and I mean, we see movies that sort of play out the same narrative. At some point, the creation turns towards the creator and wants to take him down. Why? Because if there's, if there's to be a real sense of relationship or love, there must be choice. And I've wondered, you know, had there not been that tree there, I, I wonder if at some point humanity would have tried to kill God. <laughs> Sneak up on him while he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Why? Because as creatures created in his image, choice matters because freedom matters because if we're created in God's image we are created for relationship and you can't have relationship without freedom and without choice and so God courageously puts a tree in the garden and says now you can make your choice if you want ongoing relationship with me your origin your source of life it's available to you I love you I'm here for you but if you choose to do it your own way you can and in the presence of choice, this is important, in the presence of choice, relationship becomes more powerful and love comes to life. God gives people freedom and choice, and he does it because he loves us. And this isn't just sort of the, this one move that might sort of be in Eden. I want you to pay attention to the tendencies in Jesus. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 6, one of the accounts of Jesus walking on water. You like those stories? I love them. In Mark's account of it, I don't know why he includes this detail, but he has this line in there where he says, Jesus was about to pass them by. So here they are in a boat. And Jesus is walking along on the water, and the other writers don't include this detail. But to Mark, who is writing sort of on Peter's behalf, this mattered. That it was as if Jesus was just going to walk by the boat. Why would he do that? 
perhaps to see if his disciples want him in the boat or not. And again, empowering people with a sense of choice. In Luke chapter 24, after Jesus is resurrected, there's an account of him traveling on a road, and he meets up with a few other people who, they're confused by everything that's just happened, the death of Jesus, there's rumors of, is he still dead, where is he, what's going on, and so he has this wonderful conversation with them. And then they reach a point, it might be their destination, and then Luke includes this detail where he says, Jesus acted as if he was going to go a little further. This is fun, I think, to imagine. Picture this, Jesus walking with two travelers, they get to a point, and then Jesus pretends like he's gonna keep going. Why would he put on that act? To see if those people wanted him to stay. Because that would be a gesture of their choice, their freedom, and their desire for ongoing relationship. In John chapter six, Jesus preaches his worst sermon ever. He says this, in a nutshell, it's a long chapter, it's great, but I can summarize it for you. He had two main points. Number one, eat my body. Number two, drink my blood. Sounds like a Halloween message from Jesus, hey? And I'm sure when he starts uh, preaching, some of the disciples are like, ooh, this is edgy, Jesus. This is gonna be good. The crowds are gonna be like, oh, you, you, you hooked us. Where are you going with this, Jesus? And essentially, his sermon goes like this. Eat my body, drink my blood. You, you, thank you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. And the disciples are like, what? No, 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 no. You've got to explain this. Because we have a Jewish audience here, and the whole idea of cannibalism isn't just you know, weird for us because we're people, but because we're Jewish, this is highly offensive. Now we're talking about uncle you know, uncle uncleanliness. What's going on here? It's his worst sermon ever, and Jesus doesn't stop to explain what he means. And it says crowds began leaving him. They were confused. He didn't explain. And then he turns, it says in, in John chapter 6, he turns to his closest followers and friends, his disciples, and he says to them, you do not want to leave too, do you? What's he doing there? He's showing them that if you want to leave, you can. There is a door out. You don't have to stay with me if you don't want to. What is God doing there? Again, he's empowering humanity with a sense of choice. And then Peter speaks up in that story. If you've never read it, it's beautiful. He essentially says, listen, Jesus, we're as confused as everybody else is, but this I know. When you talk, I feel alive, so I'm staying with you. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus comes to his hometown, and we should expect that everybody's really happy to see him, right? And what happens? He's rejected in his hometown. And it says... He could not do many miracles there. Have you ever wrestled with that language? Why would scripture say he could not do many miracles there? Some of us might like it to say he would not do any miracles there because he was so mad at his hometown. Why are you so mean to me? I won't heal your sick. I won't, you, you want fish and bread multiplied for you? Forget about it. I won't do that. No, he doesn't. It says he could not. Now, does that mean that God's powers were stopped by the people? Not exactly. What it means is that they were unreceptive, so they were not bringing people to him for his ministry. And so opportunities were not opened by the choices of people around him. And therefore, he could not, he had a desire to do miracles, but if people aren't going to bring them to me, he's not going to go and force himself upon others. Why? God believes in freedom. God believes in choice. It's essential for relationship. It's essential for love. In Mark chapter 5, 
Jesus is in a region called the Decapolis. In fact, uh, I think it was on Thanksgiving, Pastor Trevor brought the message about the demonized guy there living in the tombs, and that area was called the Decapolis. There was 10 cities in that area, Deca, 10, Polis, city, Decapolis. And after that man is set free, he was known by so many people in the area, you'd think that the crowds would have come running and saying, this is unbelievable, Jesus, can you stay and help us with other people? Like, maybe you've got something for our community. That's not the response at all. What does it say about the Decapolis? They pleaded urgently with him for him to do what? For him to leave the area. And so what does God do? No, I'm God. I'm staying. No, he got in the boat and he left. They were exercising their freedom and choice and they were rejecting him and so he honored it. Now, it's a beautiful story because if you... You know, some of us, that's a little disruptive to think about God just saying, okay, I'm out of here. But the man he left there, that demonized guy who was set free, he did his job. He was supposed to tell his story amongst those people. Jesus shows up again to that area in Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 8. He shows up to the same area. This time they're not saying get out. They're saying come. And they're bringing sick people to him. He's healing them. Mark chapter 8, 4,000 people plus family members are all fed in this miraculous feast. How does that happen? That man who was set free did his job, told people what Jesus did, and it changed something in their hearts from, no, we don't want God, to, hey, if he comes around here again, I'm listening. I'll go to him. We need his help. What is going on in Jesus? I think, friends, this is stunning and a little scary. That scripture reveals to us that we have a God who turns to humanity and says, thy will be done. I I think that the number one question most people on earth would want to ask God about if they had the chance to would be about what? Why is there so much suffering in the world? I, I believe that question finds its origin in a misunderstanding of what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about and how God delegates authority to humanity to have dominion over the earth and then he empowers us with freedom and choice. You can do it with me and my way or yours. And so if the number one question that people might have for God is why is there so much suffering in the world, I propose to you that the number one question God might have for people is Why is there so much suffering in the world? Because who's in charge here? Who did he leave in charge? You and I. And, And how are we doing at this? Not well. It's almost as if we need someone full of love to rule us so that we can rule his creation in his same spirit. I think it's ironic Exercising freedom to choose independence and its illusion of absolute liberty leads to bondage. I mean, just pay attention to this in our world, in our own lives. People pursue freedom at all costs, right? Their idea of freedom. And when you spend time with people who are facing real addictions in their world, it was freedom that got them there, but their free- what happened? What they got freely in became a trap. It actually 
didn't turn into more and more freedom. It came to limit freedom, to choke. Exercising freedom to choose independence and its illusion of absolute liberty leads to bondage. Whereas exercising freedom to choose dependence, which appears to mean limitations, doesn't it? Ironically leads to absolute liberty. The first tree in the garden reveals God's purpose of life. The second tree in the garden reveals his purpose for what? Freedom. When Laura and I uh, were starting our family together a long time ago now, um, we were looking for you know, any good resources that we could find that would help with the parenting journey. And so we navigated our way through a bunch of different materials and books. We talked to couples that had children that we liked, and we thought, we've got to find out a few things that they do. Don't talk to the people where you don't like their kids because we don't want to do what they're doing. Um, or we're going to learn what not to do. Um, and we came across this book called Loving Our Kids on Purpose by Danny Silk. Some of you may have heard this book. And uh, it's a fairly simple book. And I turned to this book to learn about parenting. And it was the first chapter of the book that left me weeping, not about parenting, but about how I had been viewing God and how I had been viewing freedom and how I had been viewing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was in this book, ironically, on parenting, that I began to see that God's gesture towards humanity with that tree was freedom in the same way that us as parents need to learn, and it's a hard one. Parents, I get it. We love our kids, and we keep failing, don't we? So I reread the chapter this week. I was like, right, right. Oh, this is helpful, not just for this message, but for being a dad still. Danny Silk said this in the book. Without the freedom to reject him, we are powerless to choose him. Freedom is what makes relationships possible. Friends, not only revolutionary and very helpful for parenting, very helpful to being a human in God's good world. How are you and I stewarding the freedom that he's given us? So why is there a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, friends? Simply comes down to God's desire to love us. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil helps us to see in God's heart. We see his love and then as we move towards a conclusion today, there are things that we see in God's heart when it comes to this idea of choice and freedom that are expressed beautifully through both the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. Tim Keller says this, for a love relationship to be healthy, there must be a mutual loss of independence. Some, for, some of us, for some of us, that stings to hear that. It can't just be one way. Both sides must say to the other, I will adjust to you. I will change for you. I'll serve you even though it means sacrifice for me. Now, friends, before I go on in this quote here, if there's one relationship in all universal existence that could be one way, and we'd think, well, you've got the right for it to be that one, it would be God to us, right? And us to God. Humanity adjusting for the divine, humanity changing for the divine, humanity serving the divine through sacrifice. I mean, that sounds like all the religions that are out there, doesn't it? Keller carries on and says this, well, this may be true in other forms of religion and belief in God. It is not true in Christianity. 
in the most radical way. God has adjusted to us his incarnation and atonement. In Jesus Christ, he became vulnerable to suffering and death. On the cross, he submitted to our condition as sinners and died in our place to forgive us in the most profound way God has said to us through Jesus Christ, I will adjust to you. I will change for you. I will serve you, though it means sacrifice for me. It's like this. God says through scripture, I live, therefore you can live. And then people say, oh, I will become like you. And that results in our death. So God says, I will become like you. And it results in his death. But it doesn't end there. God says, I rose, you will rise. That's the hope of the gospel. I want you to think for a moment what we see in the humanity of Jesus. I'm turning to Matthew chapter 26. You can follow me there if you want to. Matthew chapter 26. We've just considered how through Jesus Christ in in the divinity of Jesus, God gestures love. But I want you to see in the humanity of Jesus the example he leads for us. Matthew chapter 26 at verse 36. It says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Gethsemane was a garden or an orchard. It was olive trees there. And many of you have heard the phrase Garden of Gethsemane. He said to them there, Sit while I go over there and pray. Jesus is on the way to the cross. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. I want you to see this is the humanity of Jesus. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, If it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not what I will, but as you will. Verse 40, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away and he prayed a second time. And what were the words of his second prayer? My father, it's not possible, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. Verse 43, when he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same. Jesus, in that moment of anguish and sorrow, prays the same prayer three times. It's intended for us to catch how vital it was for him to say those words. What we see here, when we consider that story and then the story of Eden, is that in the first garden, we have Adam who says, my will be done. And then in the second garden, 
Gethsemane. We have Jesus modeling for humanity. This is what it means to be a person. Thy will be done. I wonder if you would stand with me. If it helps you to just close your eyes, you can do that. But I want you with me to behold in front of you two trees. A tree of independence and a tree of dependence. A tree of death and a tree of life. A tree that when we eat of it, we say, Before we sing together in response, I want you just to have 30 seconds where you form your own prayer of response from your heart to God. Would you just whisper it gently from your lips in response to what we've considered today? How would your heart, how would your life like to respond to his? up on the screen for everybody to see. I know some people like to grab a picture in case your group's meeting today or tomorrow morning. We have gospel fluency discussion happening this week. Um, I won't go through all the questions that you see behind me, but this is your photo op if that's you. These will be put online tomorrow. Maybe, I'm not even sure if they get on today, but they'll be there for you soon. Um, there's ongoing reading in the book if you're tracking along with that, and then some good discussion for you to have. The last thing in the discussion is this year as we look to Christmas outreach as a church family, 
We want to do something where we're not just doing it individually or even just corporately, but together with others. So where I'm asking you in your gospel fluency discussion groups, scheme together about things you could do. Is there one person you could help them to experience, to feel the love and truth of Jesus, not with your words, but by your generosity, your help, your compassion. Maybe you could do something together as a group. So keep working on that. I think that's going to be an exciting thing for us to experience together. As we conclude today, I wonder if you'd join me just placing your hand over your heart. There's nothing magical about it, but maybe it's our way of saying, God, you can work in the deepest part of who I am. Father, if, if this all happens to be true, we're so sorry for the ways that we assert our own independence. It's so easy to fall into that without even being we're so sorry for the mess we make in our world and in moments like this we ask again that God through Jesus Christ you would rule us so that we can serve your world and see your kingdom of love and truth come and so that your will thy will would be done on earth as it is in heaven right now we're going into your world on your mission and we declare again our dependence can't do this on your own. We need the empowerment of your Holy Spirit so that we can bring your love, your truth, your message, your ministry into the everyday stuff of work and school and Halloween. Amen. Amen. Today, as we conclude, maybe Vaughn, if you don't mind making yourself available, Calvin and Claire, I'm not sure if you have to run and do other things if you're available, if you could just make yourselves available near the front here. Um, If you came today and there is a prayer need in your life, be important for you before you leave to receive prayer from somebody. Vaughn's going to be up here and a few others may be available. Grab somebody and just say, would you pray for me? Um, Alrighty, everybody. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Be a great blessing and light tomorrow. Have a wonderful week. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.